It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be joined by Senator Marsha Blackburn, a member of the Senate Judiciary and Armed Services Committee. She will not be able to ask questions to Tony Blinken today. That is foreign relations. But, man, does she have a lot of questions as to you about what happened and how the hell is everybody getting away with it. Bottom of the hour, the man who wants to be the next governor of Texas, uh, Alan West, will be with us live. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There's more mandates I wish he would have given. I think mandating vaccines for air travel, train travel, or interstate bus travel would also be important. Unbelievable. Vaccine mandate mania. Joe Biden's decided to divide in order to distract, mock rather than lead, get ready for planes, buses, and trains to demand a vaccine just to ride. Is that okay in America as Big Pharma gets set to greenlight vaccines for five and up? Are you ready, parents? They're coming for your kids. Number two. It's going to be a lot more than 3.5 over eight or 10 years because it'll continue. All these programs will never come off. They haven't even scored out that far. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, that's a social reform. That is Joe Manchin, of course. I have an idea. Let's raise taxes on everyone. Use money to pay for everyone else in cradle-to-grave funding. That's the reconciliation package making its way through the Democratic committees with details coming out today, written by tomorrow. What will what will it mean for us and societal restructuring? Senator Cinema and Manchin stand between us and chaos. Number one. How meticulous was the planning for the Trump administration declared uh, May 1st uh, withdrawal? We inherited a deadline. We did not inherit a plan. So <laughs> no, uh, no plan at all. Uh, it's amazing that it wasn't much, much worse. Wow. Uh, there you go. Uh, Blinken filibusters through his speed, speed dating format as the House congressional hearings and the themes were unsurprising, yet still disturbing. Blame Trump for all that went wrong. And for the Afghan surrender. Today he faces the Senate. What do you hope he will be asked? I know what I hope he'll be asked. Uh, I will just do some research. That's all I'm asking for Republicans to do. From Marco Rubio to Senator Ron Johnson uh, to uh, Senator Ted Cruz. And find out what there were going to be is a series of marks. And if you read the six-page story, it's available anywhere. A six-page agreement roughly outlined. They had to hit it. And if they broke any of them, they would be hit uh, hard with military strikes. And I'm pretty sure Donald Trump wouldn't have said on the phone to Gahani when he said, we're being invaded for 10 to 15,000 from Pakistan being armed and supplied by Pakistan. I'm pretty sure the president of the United States wouldn't have said, just change the perception that you're winning and lie. So it was predictable, especially when you watch Anthony Blinken or any secretary of state. They're used to be a master diplomat. They never answer a question directly. That's part of their job. They're not supposed they're supposed to be unflappable. You're supposed to just be very diplomatic and parse all these words. It's very frustrating. So frustrating that Congressman Brian Mast, who has watched Afghanistan fall. 
back into the hands of the Taliban. See Zawahiri cutting tapes in Afghanistan. See Al-Qaeda having presence in Afghanistan. Finds out that the people who hit through a drone strike were actually allied, it looks like, according to the Washington Post and New York Times, with our forces. We killed the wrong people and said this. He had no interest in, uh, in taking his three minutes and getting filibuster questions. He wanted to make statements. Cut 10. I do not believe a word that you're saying on this. Simply put, I do not wish to hear from you. I'm not simply put, Congressman, what you said is dead wrong. I don't wish there to hear your lies. manipulation you of intelligence. When you period. In front of the camera, and you, you have all been regularly advised of the intelligence no, assessments. All the gentlemen, over the, the gentleman was suspended. The gentleman's time, the gentleman's time has expired. And so is the secretary. The gentleman's time has expired. Yes, so the, secretary. the secretary can answer the question. I didn't ask him a question. This, you did ask a question. I don't want to hear from the secretary. The gentleman's time lies has to us expired. When he steps in front of the camera. That's the gentleman's time has expired. We're here to hear from the secretary, not uh, to hear lies. Right. And that was Brian Mastigan, as you can understand the frustration. You didn't anticipate Gahani leaving. You didn't anticipate the, the army not fighting. And yet on the phone call, you find out the president of the United States was saying to him, you'll keep losing, change the perception. They didn't put up a fight in any provincial capital, not because they didn't want to. It's because they thought it was hopeless because the U.S. had left. Now, does Trump deserve some discredit on that? Yes. Would I have met with the Taliban? No. Was there a reason in our country? Was there a sentiment to get out? If asked, yes. But if you explain to the country that we need the counterterrorism presence in the region so these buildings don't fall, the Pentagon doesn't get hit, and passengers don't have to wrestle down uh, hijackers in the middle of a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, America would have understood But instead, we're going to leave. We had a plan. We had a deadline. We had no choice. So this morning, I wrote Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who was in Seoul, Korea. And I just asked him, they say that you had a deadline, no plan. And he says, not true. Here's our plan. Maintenance, maintain deterrence, which they did. Every time they got out of line, every time they tried to take a provincial capital, they would be blown up. Number two, only leave once conditions are met. So if there was a coalition government that Gohani was going to be involved with, a coalition government, if there was any taking of a capital, if there was a brutalizing of women, if there was retribution on Afghan forces, this whole thing is done. Everyone and everything out. We would have gotten all our hardware out. We would have gotten our people out, then the military. Quote, there was no plan. Here's the quote. What do we do if we set a date certain? Close Bagram, pull out the military with civilians on the ground. We didn't need to plan for chaos because we would not have allowed it. Indeed, we did not create chaos by taking those actions that resulted in this debacle. So it's so unbelievably anti-American to take zero responsibility. If you are doing an in-depth interview and you say, in retrospect, when I took over, I saw this six-page document, I thought that was going to be the framework for something I would do, and that would be the one plan of Donald Trump's I kept. Now he says I had no choice. I just want to bring in another exchange, and I was wrestling with this all day, five hours of rhetorical answers and many things. If I could have jumped in and if these lawmakers could have jumped in, they would have done the same thing, I think, in most cases and said, what are you talking about? Here's a little exchange with Lee Zeldin, who wants to be the next governor of New York, cut 11. 
the Taliban. They continue to press forward because we have an administration that doesn't know how to confront an adversary, under, understanding that they do not respect weakness. They only respect strength. And, and it, it is so greatly unfortunate, the consequences. And I believe that you, sir, should resign. That would be leadership. I yield back. Uh, to the contrary, uh, Congressman, I believe that uh, there's nothing that uh, our strategic competitors like China or Russia uh, or our adversaries like, uh, like Iran, like North Korea, would have liked more than for President Biden to have re-upped the war in Afghanistan. Okay. Five- this, and they use the term bogged down in different answers. This is 100% not true. For us, I'm going to ask you this at home. You're driving in your car right now. You're listening in your kitchen. Ask yourself, if you're China, would you want America in a sophisticated military base a few hundred miles from your border? Or would you like America leaving a country that borders you humiliated? Now you have the ability to walk in there, cut deals about there with their rare earth, maybe take over Bagram Airport, have major influence with a government that you didn't have influence with before. Why wouldn't you want America out? To think that China wants us bogged down there when we only had 2,500 or, you know, Millie wanted 4,000 troops? That's not bogged down. That's called a strategic advantage. Are we bogged down in Germany, bogged down in South Korea? Are we bogged down in Japan? No, no, and no. Come on. We're not idiots. We have now lost eyes and ears, and we've given rebirth to a terror state. That doesn't benefit America. It benefits China, Russia, Pakistan, and Iran. Leon Panetta, cut 13. And the greatest concern I have is that uh, the Taliban that is now uh, in charge of Afghanistan is pretty much the same Taliban that was in charge of Afghanistan and 9-11. And that tells me that uh, one of the dangers here is that Afghanistan could clearly become a safe haven for terrorists, for al-Qaeda, for ISIS, uh, for the Haqqani terrorists, and that that could represent a real threat to our national security. Right. Read Leon Panetta's book, a Democrat, former Republican, but a Democrat chief of staff for Bill Clinton, former CIA director, and I believe Se- director, uh, director of defense, uh, secretary of defense. I'm not positive on that. But he knew the area all over. You've seen him on the special with Chris Wallace over the weekend on the bin Laden raid. A realist when it came to terror, like a Joe Lieberman, it seems to me, who just seemed to care about our security, didn't really care about party when it came to foreign policy. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Marsha Blackburn about this and the reconciliation package. What can we do as Americans? We are socializing our entire economy. It's going to be all automatic withdrawal. Where's going to be the innovation? How are we possibly going to grow our way out of this debt? And then Alan West. And then I'll finish up this hour with your calls. Get in line now, one 408 Just got a quick reminder. The President and the Freedom Fighter, the book comes out in November. It's Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the Battle to Save America's Soul. And I'll be doing live shows in Charleston, West Virginia, November 7th. And Orlando, Florida, November 21st. Ponte Vedra, Florida, December 3rd. Clearwater, Florida, December 4th. I want to see everybody out there. It's winning the war on history. We take it all on. All the books in the past. A great patriotic evening. Just go to BrianKillMe.com. See you there. Back in a moment. Getting past all the rhetoric. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. A talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. He will not have my vote on 3.5, and Chuck knows that. And we've talked about this. Um, we've already put out 5.4 trillion, and we've tried to help Americans in every way we possibly can. And a lot of the help that we put out there is still there, and it's going to run clear until next year. It's absolutely not acceptable to me. I don't think it's acceptable to the president, to the American people, or to the overwhelming majority of the people in the Democratic caucus. It would be a really sad state of affairs for the American people, for Congress, if both of those bills went down. Do you think that's possible, that that could happen right now? Yeah. Senator Marsha Blackburn joins us right now, who is really, like all the other Republicans, just a bystander because they're looking to do this on simply a party line vote. They're allowed to do another two a year on just budget items. I don't know how much is going to get struck from this. and What is it going to look like, if anything? Senator Marsha Blackburn, welcome back. It is good to be with you. Thank you. So you saw that fight going on. Joe Manchin trying to a degree yeah. uh, have a bit of physical sanity along with Kirsten Sinema. Who, who, who's going to prevail here? What do you think? It is going to be very difficult for the Democrats to continue to push all of this out-of-control spending. And, Brian, the reason for this is the American people have grown quite weary of what Joe Biden is doing. They did not like Afghanistan, the way he approached the withdrawal, how nonchalant he has been about that. They were astounded with that press conference that he gave with the vaccine mandate. And they're trying to pretend that Afghanistan did not happen, that it didn't turn into a debacle and just move on from it and say, we can heal all of your doubts by passing this spending and pushing more money out the door. And people are going, hey, wait a minute. You know, you've been spending all this money. You're spending at a record pace. This isn't what we want. We are thinking about our kids and our grandkids. We kind of like America as we know it. We don't want I know, your but, revised but you're talking version like a Republican, of a Senator. radically transformed country. I know, but you're talking like a Republican. Uh, you're not talking like a Democrat. They, they think their polling shows that their people want this. But when I am talking to people in the real world, Democrats, independents, Republicans, they are not for what Joe Biden is trying to do. And because of this, you've got these contested Senate races, New Hampshire, uh, looking at the race there, the seat we'll hold in North Carolina, the seat we're going to pick up in Georgia. And people are going, hey, wait a minute, I can't vote for this. Uh, look at what this is going to do to me politically. Look at uh, what you've got in Nevada. Um, th- these are people that knew, know they're going to get beat. They're going to lose their race if they continue to vote for what Joe Biden is trying to push. So um, we have a uh, top bracket's going to go from 39.6 to 37. Capital gains is going to go from 20 to 25. Uh, the Democrats proposing raising the corporate tax rate above China to 26.5 from 21 percent. Uh, they are going to have a surtax for people who make over $5 million. Uh, they're going to get rid of the salt tax. They're fighting each other on that. 
James Clyburn says we might have to settle for 2.5. Joe Manchin keeps saying 1.5. Keep in mind, Senator Blackburn, when we when the economy collapsed, the stimulus package was 800 billion. We thought that was a lot. It was a lot. And when you look historically at what has happened with our debt, Brian, when you go from George Washington to George Bush, our country had rolled up $10.6 trillion worth of debt. And then Obama-Biden doubled that. They put us at 22. We have Trump and COVID that adds a little bit. But now these guys are pushing us to $30 trillion. And within 10 years, we're going to be over $40 trillion in debt. People are beginning to wake up and pay attention to this. And they know what happened under Obama-Biden. And now, with Biden-Harris, they're looking at it tick up even further, and they're going $7 trillion, and you're spending, adding a trillion dollars a month, in essence, to our national debt. We can't afford this. So I want to talk about the, the Blinken hearings yesterday. He didn't show up in person. Ridiculous. He will show up at the Senate in foreign relations today. On the Republican side, Jim Risch, Marco Rubio, Ron Johnson, Mitt Romney, Rob Portman, Rand Paul, Todd Young, Ted Cruz, John Barrasso, Mike Grounds, Bill Haggerty. We'll all be asking questions. On the other side, maybe Chris Coons will have a tough one. I'm not sure. Bob Menendez seems pretty unhappy with the way this all went down in Afghanistan. What American wouldn't be? Here's who Blinken blamed. How meticulous was the planning for the Trump administration declared uh, May 1st uh, withdrawal? Uh, thank you, Congressman. Uh, we, uh, we inherited a deadline. We did not inherit a plan. So right there, Mike Pompeo pushed back on text with me on that. What about you? What, what would have been different if Trump was doing this? If they had stuck to the plan that President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, our NATO allies and our Afghan partners had put in place, it would have been conditions-based. And if the Taliban was pushing forward, they knew that they were going to be smacked upside the head by President Trump. He promised them that. And he knew that they knew that they could not cross him. Joe Biden is weak. He has weak leadership because of this. American citizens have been left in Afghanistan behind enemy lines. This administration does not want to accept any responsibility for this because they know they messed up. It's a debacle. It happened on their watch. It happened because they circled a date on the calendar and said, we want to take a victory lap on September 11th. So everybody out by September 11th. Well, wasn't going well, so let's get the military out. And then everybody else, they're just left. We want to know, what was their plan? Gotcha. Senator Marsha Blackburn, thanks so much. You want to be the next governor of Texas, will he? Alan West next. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. show like no other. 
It's Brian Kilmeade. The conditions had plainly not been met to include the condition that, that the uh, Taliban would have reached an agreement with the Afghan government. Negotiations on that never started. So the idea that they were under a deadline, of, uh, that a meaningful deadline on, on the 1st of May is nonsense, and everything that's predicated on that is therefore nonsense as well. So they're talking about the fact that they kept saying that the, the whole problem was President Trump set a date certain. Really? That's the one policy with President Trump you were counting on? The one that you just didn't want to reverse? That was what you wanted to do in 2008, get out of Afghanistan. You saw that as an opportunity. You still pushed it back to September. There was no obligation, and there was a series of things, conditions-based uh, evacuation. Yes, Trump did want to get out, and I don't think he ever should have talked to the Taliban. I said it at the time. It made no sense. Khalizad said, I know the region. I was born in Afghanistan. Kind of convinced everybody that that was the way to go. It didn't make any sense to me, but, you know, he spent his life overseas, ambassador to Afghanistan at one point, ambassador to Iraq. So I thought maybe he knows what he's doing. Obviously, he didn't. Cut the worst deal possible. Guy that was over there for a while, fights our wars for almost three decades. Colonel Alan West joins us now. Colonel, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Brian. How are you today? So blame Trump was the theme yesterday. Not unexpected, yeah. but it's not going to work. No, it's not going to work. And when you look at this administration, it is going back to the exact same thing we had in the Obama administration. Everything was about blaming George W. Bush. Uh, and we saw that the, there was failure upon failure upon failure. Same thing with the economy, same thing with foreign policy, national security uh, policy, energy policy. And we see that happen again in the Biden administration. But what you saw with Secretary of State Blinken yesterday was an abject failure. And to sit there and not take any responsibility, accountability, to tell uh, the members of the Congress and then also the American people that, well, we inherited a, a deadline but no plan. So, in other words, you didn't stop to think that we should develop a plan for this uh, withdrawal that, you know, you guys were the ones that decided you would move forward on. So it was more of an indictment upon the incompetence and the ineptness of this administration and the Secretary of State. I want you to hear uh, – I'm going to let Blinken – try to make his case to you and see what you would say. Cut five. No one uh, predicted uh, the unraveling um, before our forces uh, and, uh, and, and embassy left uh, Afghanistan on August 31st. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Milley, has said, nothing I or anyone else saw indicated a collapse of the government and the security forces in 11 days. Uh, the director of national intelligence has said, in the days leading up to the Taliban takeover, intelligence agencies did not say collapse. Uh, was imminent. This unfolded more quickly than we anticipated, including in the intelligence community. Wow. Let's throw everybody under the bus. Uh, the intelligence <laughs> yeah. committee, uh, General Milley. Well, let me tell you something. That transcript tells a different story. We, you have to change the perception that you're losing, even if it's not the case. Really? Well, what, if, you lo if you're not fighting in any of the other provincial capitals, what makes you think they're going to break format and fight for Kabul? And if you can't judge an allied defense force, you should just relieve yourself of that job. Well, you're absolutely right. And the amazing thing is that it was Joe Biden who came out in an interview and predicted that there would not be a collapse. He said that the Afghanistan National Army would stand strong. And so there was your prediction right there. But, you know, you have to just really scratch your head. How could the intelligence community and everyone get this so wrong? Well, they didn't. They, uh, we know that there were memos, communiques, whatever yeah. you want to call it, that was sent to the Secretary of State saying that this is a possibility. This could happen. And for 
the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, maybe General Milley should be focused more so on what was going on on the ground in Afghanistan than worry about critical race theory and uh, white rage in the military. So I want to bring you to a point in the phone call. He said to Gahani, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a moment, uh, I am a moment late, but I mean in sincerity. Hey, look, I want to make it clear that I'm not a military man any more than you are. But I have a meeting with our Pentagon folks and the security people, as you have with ours and yours. And as you know, I need to tell you, I do not need to tell you the perception around the world and in parts of Afghanistan, I believe, is that things aren't going well in terms of the fight against the Taliban. And there's a need, whether it's true or not, there is a need to project a different picture. Wow. What is that? Well, that's, you know, if if it were the same standard that was used against President Donald J. Trump, that's grounds for impeachment. Uh, because we know that they tried to, well, they did, and the House of Representatives impeached Trump on a phone call to the Ukrainian president, and there was no real there there. But now you have all the evidence of undermining our national security uh, and foreign policy in that phone call with uh, Joe Biden and uh, President Ghani of Afghanistan. So, again, when you know Secretary Blinken says that no one could have predicted, well, then what was that phone conversation between uh, Joe Biden and President Ghani all about? The bottom line is that— we abandoned the, the government of Afghanistan, much the same as Jimmy Carter did the Shah of Iran back in 1979, and it brought on the Islamic Revolution. The Ayatollah Khomeini was brought to power. Uh, we had a hostage crisis for 444 days. And uh, as George Santayana and Winston Churchill have articulated, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that's exactly what we see happening here. So Gahani says, Mr. President, we're facing a full-scale invasion composed of the Taliban, full Pakistani planning and logistical support, and at least ten to 15,000 international terrorists, predominantly Pakistanis, thrown into this. So the dimension needs to be taken account of. Second, what is crucial, close air support. If I could make a request, you have been very generous. If your assistance, particularly our Air Force, be front-loaded, because we need at this moment, there was a very heavily reliance on air power. And we have prioritized that. If it could be at least front-loaded, we would greatly appreciate it. And third, regarding procedure for the rest of the assistance, for instance, military pay has not increased for over 10 years. We need to make some gestures to rally everybody together so it could assign the National Security Advisor, the Pentagon, anyone you wish to work with us on details. So, at the expect- so the expectations, particularly regarding your close air support, there are agreements with the Taliban that we, for you, this is unclear or not previously aware of, and because of your Air Force was extremely cautious in attacking them. And my last point, I just spoke with Abdullah, the vice president. He wants to negotiate with the Taliban. The Taliban show no inclination. We can get to peace only if we rebalance the military situation. And I can assure you. So he's saying what he just said. You're you're a colonel in the in the army. What is he telling you? He's telling you here are the conditions, here are the resources, here is what we can do and what we can accomplish. And uh, he is saying to Joe Biden, uh, will you be a a willing ally and supporters on this? He is laying out the conditions on the ground. Uh, And obviously, you know, Joe Biden did not listen to the intelligence community, community, his National Security Council, which is made up of Jake Sullivan, his National Security Advisor, and Secretary of uh, State Blinken, and the Secretary of Defense. Uh, Obviously, they did not take 
into into thought any of this counsel, and he did not listen to it. And so, therefore, we have a situation whereby in 20 years we have gone right back to where we were, except this uh, new Taliban, if I can put it that way, they have more weapons, they have more capability, and they have more clout. And China is already talking about a status of forces agreement with them uh, so that they can get Bagram Air Base, and they want to be able to go in and get all of those incredible minerals that you have there to include lithium, which is very necessary for batteries and electric vehicles and all of these things. Colonel, uh, what's going on in Texas is very interesting. Between the voting rule, we don't think, I don't think is extreme at all, but it has not been sold well. No. Uh, number two, along with your abortion law that the Supreme Court said I'm not getting involved with, where do you stand on both these issues? Well, without a doubt, you know, we have to have, you know, honest and fair elections, and we have to make sure that the people here in Texas have confidence in the, in our elections. And, you know, we talked about the, the heartbeat bill. I think that if, if the left is really into murdering unborn babies in the womb by means of dismemberment, uh, that shows you their lack of humanity. Uh, and what's so amazing to me, uh, Brian, is that, you know, the Democrats are spending more time attacking Texas for trying to protect babies in the womb than they are going after the Taliban. Uh, they call the Taliban professional and businesslike, but yet a baby in the womb they want to uh, be able to, to to murder. And, you know, I'm sitting here right now, and I've got my little uh, almost four-month-old grandson in my arms because we had grandparent duty last night and today. Um, I cannot imagine you know, ending his life in, in the womb. Uh, and I'm so honored to be a part of, you know, this next generation in my family. So I stand for life. And I think that Texas is going to be a leader in making sure that the number one inalienable right that we have as per the Declaration of Independence, life, that means born and unborn, is going to be preserved. Roe v. Wade started here in Texas. And I think that Texas is going to step up and is going to uh, make sure that we change the path of, of what has been the murder of 60 million babies in the womb uh, since 1973. So when's your primary? Right now, because of the redistricting, uh, that's up in the air, but it will probably end up being April or May of next year. Uh, and so we look forward to that primary uh, contest. But I'll be heading down to Nacogdoches, Texas tonight. And Nacogdoches is the oldest city in Texas. So I'm looking forward to being down there with some good, strong constitutional conservatives. All right. Uh, thanks so much. Where do you go if we want to support your run for governor? Thank you so much, uh, Brian. It's west, the number four, Texas.com, west four, Texas.com, and appreciate you. All right. Go get him. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Alan Roger West, that. who actually worked in Kandahar uh, in Afghanistan with uh, Afghan forces, uh, not the Taliban. Colonel, thank you. Yes, sir. Take care, Brian. Meanwhile, I don't want to forget the fact that private groups, uh, retired military, are organizing now with the Defense Department's help, uh, at least with words, are organizing to get Americans and green card holders uh, out. We hope that happens because somehow we ended up with 122,000 out and many of which we have no, that, uh, no idea what they, who they are. And we know this. They're asking Congress, which is us, for $6.5 billion to support them. I thought we were supposed to save money by leaving Afghanistan. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. There's no topic he won't touch, and there's no opinion he won't engage. It's one of the great joys of my life. Call in with yours at 866-408-7669. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. 
Nicki Minaj is a huge rap artist. Not sure there's much overlap between her audience and this one, but our producers assure us she's one of the biggest in the world. 100 billion records, assuming records still exist. And she has an opinion on vaccine mandates, which is still technically allowed in this country. So ahead of the Met Gala tonight, she tweeted about it. She's skeptical. She wrote this, quote, They want you to get vaccinated for the Met. If I get vaccinated, it won't be for the Met. It'll be once I feel I've done enough research. I'm working on that now. In the meantime, be safe. Wear the mask with two strings that grip your face and head, not that loose one, end quote. And then in another tweet, she added this. She said that her cousin in Trinidad, quote, won't get the vaccine because his friend got it and became impotent. His testicles became swollen. His friend was weeks away from getting married. Now that girl called off the wedding. So just pray on it and make sure you're comfortable with your decision, not bullied, which seems sensible. So, uh, for you know, when Tucker came back this week, he's been all over the vaccines. He cannot believe that we watched the president of the United States berate people, say he's losing his patience with the American people because they're not getting vaccinated at a quick enough rate. Meanwhile, 75 percent of the country got at least one shot of the eligible for the shot. They're about to OK the five and up. And a lot of people have natural immunity. Uh, and I just think it's way out of control. Now they're talking about doing it on buses, on trains, on planes, have to have a vaccine to do all that. And if you have a business with over 100, you got to get everyone vaccinated. I talked to some CEO today. He says, he, he says I have no idea how to implement this pro program. And I'm getting people to say, if this happens, I'm quitting. And they're doing it in hospitals. Why are so many in the medical field not wanting to get vaccinated? Why are so many PhDs not wanting to get vaccinated? Why, is, why are so many African-Americans not wanting to get vaccinated? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Remember when Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Anthony Fauci, and Jen Psaki said this, cut 30. I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. Can we mandate vaccines across the country? No, that's not a role that the federal government, I think, even has the power to make. We cannot require someone to be vaccinated. That's just not what we can do. It is a matter of privacy to know who is or who isn't. No, definitely not. You don't want to mandate and try and force anyone to take a vaccine. We've never done that. We don't want to be mandating from the federal government to the general population. It would be unenforceable and not appropriate. True. But now he changed his tune entirely. Dr. Gottlieb said it's counterproductive. The American people do not like to be ordered uh, to what to do when it comes to their own medical device, uh, medical advice. And then the vice president tweets something incomprehensible out and contradictory. Uh, quote, by vaccinating the unvaccinated, increasing our testing and masking and protecting the vaccinated, we can end this pandemic. That's exactly what we're committed to be doing. So and protecting the vaccinated. The vaccinated have been protected. What are you talking about? Incredible. Here's Anthony Fauci yesterday. Totally changes his tune. Cut 28. I'm hearing anecdotally through people I know about breakthrough cases that are really serious that uh, end up with people being on ventilators. These are people who are vaccinated but still got COVID. What is the potential that this spirals beyond Delta to monster variant? Well, there's always a risk of as you get more circulation of virus in the community that you'll get enough accumulation of new mutations to get a variant intentionally different than the ones we're seeing now. Delta has the capability, uh, unlike Alpha, of transmitting extraordinarily readily and efficiently from person to person. 
that is the reason why we've seen that surge that we've been through over the last few months. Right. So did you ever answer a question? Why are vaccinated people going on ventilators? Can you give me an idea of the percentage that do that? Why are we always going to Israel to find out what's happening? Don't we do any of our own studies? We've been doing this now for two years almost. Can you give us an idea of what's going on using our own people? And as Allison just brought up to me, what about underlying conditions? Is Miko Brzezinski, does the person have any underlying conditions? Doesn't the doctor ask those questions? Does he ever a doctor? Does he have any patients? Is he working on a study? Does he ever... Does he ever do a color in a bar graph? So and what they're forgetting about is natural immunity. And it's actually, I was told today by immunologist, 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 uh, easy for me to say. He came out and said, I voted for Joe Biden. I, I regret it. He said, because what they're telling you to do now with this vaccine is unethical. It's unethical because a lot of people already had it. They have better protection than any vaccine. Dr. Marty McCary, cut 30. Three. Well, the largest study ever performed was in Israel, and it shows that natural immunity is 27 times more effective than vaccinated immunity, the opposite of what our public health officials have been trumpeting for the last year or so. And it's interesting, the largest and most powerful studies epidemiologically are coming out of Israel. And kudos to them for tracking things very well. But where is the CDC? You know, when it came to studying cloth versus surgical masks, the only cluster randomized controlled trial was done in Bangladesh. We're the United States of America. We spend $4 trillion on health care. The CDC has 41,000 employees along with the NIH. They have 20 times the data. We should be producing the most definitive, conclusive data on boosters, natural immunity, child vaccination outcomes, all kinds of stuff. And we're not. I don't get it. But we go to Israel. I'm fine going to Israel. But why are we paying all this money? You know, we're giving our stuff away. We're bringing our borders broken. We're paying zillions of dollars for these people to be transformed and be taken through our social uh, justice system, social economic system. We're doing it now for $6.5 billion for Afghans. Can we get some money towards the pandemic that's killing hundreds of thousands in Russia? And guess where else? China and around the world. Maybe we can get ahead of it. You know, we beat everyone else with the vaccines. You want to beat everyone over the head with it. Why don't you give us some data we can use? Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. This hour, we'll do a simulcast on FBN with Stuart Varney. You'll get to see what the fastest growing uh, cable channel in the country is like and with the number one show on that channel, Stuart Varney live. Tim Green is uh, an outstanding NFL player, first-round draft pick of the Atlanta Falcons, became an outstanding broadcaster uh, with Fox uh, and then Inside Edition, then became a lawyer while he was still a player. A multi-dimensional guy who sadly was struck down, uh, struck with ALS a couple of years ago, and he still was able to write a book. He's losing, he's losing a lot of his mobility, but he had to write the book with his eyes, literally looking at a letter and putting words together, and he did it. They went back to his books on tape, pulled out words, and they were able to get his actual voice. It sounds a little mechanical, 
but he's able to promote this book along with his son, Troy Green. Uh, it's called Final Season. If you want to do something great for your kids, get a book that they will love, whether they love sports or not, and do it for a great cause. Money goes to ALS Research. Tim Green, you're going to hear from Tim. Uh, an interview I did for TV and radio yesterday that you're going to get today and a chance to get a book, especially for those kids that don't like to read. This is one of those books you'll they'll read without being told to read. And Thomas Jocelyn, The Matter of Moments. We're also watching the beginning of the hearings on Afghanistan, and I'm encouraged by Bob Menendez. He says clearly this, this exit was flawed. There's got to be lessons learned, and people got to be held accountable. Much different than the whitewash we heard from Democrats yesterday. Thomas Jocelyn knows more about Afghanistan than anybody. He's going to be with us in a second. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There's more mandates I wish he would have given. I think mandating vaccines for air travel, train travel, or interstate bus travel would also be important. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, what a joke. Vaccine mandate mania. Joe Biden decided to divide in order to distract, mock rather than lead, get ready for planes, buses, and trains to demand vaccines to ride. Not okay in my America. Number two. It's going to be a lot more than 3.5 over 8 or 10 years because it'll continue. All these programs will never come off. They haven't even scored out that far. Mm -hmm. But with that being said, that's a social reform. Uh, Joe Manchin, I have an idea. Let's raise taxes on everybody. Use money to pay for everyone. Cradle to grave funding. That's reconciliation package, Democratic style. This has got to stop. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema can do it. I hope they follow through. Number one. How meticulous was the planning for the Trump administration declared uh, May 1st uh, withdrawal? We inherited a deadline. We did not inherit a plan. So <laughs> no, uh, no plan at all. Uh, it's amazing that it wasn't much, much worse. Unbelievable. Uh, the, the Congressman Sherman, what, he should be embarrassed. Anthony Blinken filibusters his way through uh, a speed dating format on the House congressional hearings today. He's in front of the Senate. Uh, we'll bring you the latest on the, one of the worst military adventures in American history. Probably the worst. It's been internationally devastating to us. It hurt our allies. It heartened our enemies. Thomas Jocelyn joins us now, senior fellow at the Fountain, uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, senior editor of the Long World Journal. Uh, Thomas, do you blame Trump for all this? You know, look, I mean, here's the honest truth, Brian. I mean, Brian does deserve um, – Trump does deserve a share of the blame for this. He does. I mean, the, the agreement that he signed with the Taliban, with Secretary Pompeo, was what I've termed servile diplomacy. It was about as weak need as it gets, and it undermined the Afghan government, Afghan security forces, emboldened the Taliban, and did nothing really to um, protect Americans or protect American interests. I mean, you could say, well, the Taliban allowed the U.S. to retreat after the deal was signed in February of 2020, but that's not exactly a big diplomatic accomplishment. They were always willing to let us retreat. They just wanted us out. Um, and I think that did set the stage for the mess that we watched, the catastrophe we watched this year. However, that doesn't excuse all the problems that we've seen from the Biden administration. The Biden administration you know, got out of all these other t Trump deals. They could have gotten out of this Trump deal with the Taliban. They didn't. Um, it was clear to me, you can see at the time when President Biden announced that America was going to leave, you know, in April, he came out and said, look, I'm, I'm, we're out. That's it. The withdrawal should have begun right then and there. You know, as I was saying then loudly, get out. Get the civilians out. Get these people out so we don't have a chaotic end point here, a Saigon-type moment. And unfortunately, they didn't listen. And now now to this day, you know, the Biden administration, you have Secretary Blinken testifying on the Hill, and he's talking about how the Taliban has 
committed to not allowing to, to not allowing Al Qaeda to have safe haven in Afghanistan. This shows just complete remarkable ignorance of the whole situation. Al Qaeda helped the Taliban win the war. It's their Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan too. And just earlier this month, the Taliban released a video in which they glorified the 9-11 attacks and said Americans deserved it, that we deserved to be hit on 9-11. And here you have the Secretary of State prattling on about the Taliban's supposed counterterrorism commitments. This all speaks to this gross failure of American leadership really across many years now. Uh, you know what? I agree with you, and I've said this here with Trump. I never would have been talking to the Taliban, and I also don't think there was an urgency to get out of Afghanistan. They should have explained to the American people to have a counterterrorism presence. It's in our national interest. We've all gone to Terry University as a country. We would have understood it. There's no question. If we say we want to support him forever, no one's going to buy into that, but there could have been a way. Having said all that— Nobody could have handled it worse. And I can't believe the military went along with this. At one point, do you say you can't give me 600 guys to defend a country? And if the Taliban calls and says, I'm going to take Kabul unless you're going to take it, and you say, take it, we just want the airport? I mean, what kind of idiot says that? Brian, look, I, I just, you know, you and I both um, think of ourselves as American patriots. I'm sure a lot of our the listeners right now think of themselves as American patriots. Um, part of that is we want to support the American military, and of course Absolutely. we do, especially the many service members. But part of patriotism is to have patriotic dissent, right? And I'm sorry, but the U.S. military's leaders are a failure, a big failure. Um, successive generals now in Afghanistan failed, and they failed upward. You know, They didn't win a single battle. They didn't win the war. They lost the war. They couldn't uh, get it right no matter how many times they were asked to. They didn't really know what they were doing. And the Long War Journal, part of what we've done for so many years, it's discouraging, is document how wrong they were time and time again. Um, you know, that's a massive failure. And what I'm worried about here, Brian, going forward in our country is it seems now we've, we've got a society in which when our leaders, our elite fail, there is no accountability, right? Nobody's held accountable. And I'm worried about that going forward because that's basically how a society or a country fails. When you're, when there's no accountability, there's no competition, there's no iron sharpening iron, what happens? You fail, and there's no accountability for failure. It means you fail again. And that's what I'm worried about with these guys as we continue to, to face new challenges as a country, not just from jihadism, which now we're going to have a whole other generation of terrorist threats out of Afghanistan. But we have challenges from China and Russia and others. I don't trust these guys to take on those challenges given that they didn't know how to f- defeat the Taliban. couple of things. In individual battles, our men, I think, adjusted brilliantly in a, lot, in a lot of these ways in which they took down and took this outpost and were able to take down this terrorist and able to direct drone strikes in. But in terms of the overall strategy, you know, I think originally they wanted to get in and out because they saw what happened with the Soviets. And then they realized they can't because it would be a mess and they'll come right back. So we kind of kind of caught up in it. But the Afghanistan papers and reading the longest war journal will unwind a lot of that. We don't have time for that now. A couple of things. Senator Menendez has says that just now, and it kind of encouraging, just said that this was uh, handled, handled badly and people need to be held accountable. And the Secretary of Defense turned down their request to testify. To me, that's unex- inexcusable. He probably has absolutely no answers. He looks totally out of his depth. Listen to what Blinken said yesterday, cut three. There's no evidence that staying longer would have made the Afghan security forces or the Afghan government any more resilient or self-sustaining. If 20 years and hundreds of billions of dollars in support, equipment, and training did not suffice, why would another year, another five, another ten? You want to take that on? 
Yeah, I mean, look, the, the truth is the 20-year effort was erratic. It was not a consistent 20-year effort. Now, I'm not defending it. I'm not saying that this was not – there wasn't a debacle here because it clearly was. But the U.S. military built an Afghan military that was dependent on the U.S. military to function. It fought wars like the U.S. military does, and part of that required logistical air support from American contractors who could help keep flying their birds to keep them in the fight. And with that air support, tens of thousands of Afghan soldiers did die for their cause and for their country. Guess what? Once the Biden administration removed that, once you take that away, guess what happens? They weren't used to fighting without such superior air dominance and air support. And of course, that created a big problem. There were many other problems in this withdrawal here this year. So when Blinken says that, um, you know, well, one more year wouldn't have made any difference or the resiliency or stability of the Afghan government, you know, just keeping in place some logistical air support for the, the Afghan army would have given them some more sustainability and resiliency, would have prevented this catastrophic outcome. This is a very simple, straightforward fact. And I think that that's sort of how cavalier Blinken and others are being. They want to put all the onus on Kabul, this, this regime, this, this nascent regime in a uh, country far away from us that's very un- an unstable country, which has been ravaged by war for 40 years, and not put any of the blame in Washington, the capital of a supposed superpower. A couple of things. When you read that transcript, uh, Thomas Jocelyn, Longest War Journal with us, uh, of the Gahani asking for help. Uh, I, I see a guy going, he knew this was going to happen. How do you hang up the phone and say they're going to be fine? He said Pakistan is coming with ten to 15,000 fully supported terrorists along with the Taliban. They're invading our country. Can you at least give us air support? And he basically said no. You know, yeah, wait I a mean, second. What, what are you shocked about? I mean, you know, the thing is, Brian, and all this is, yeah, Ghani was a, a, a problematic leader in Afghanistan. I could, I could give you a whole dossier on the problems of Ghani's leadership. But he's not the supposed superpower here, right? America is. America is supposed to be the big dog, and America is supposed to be the one that actually provides leadership and and does things to to affect the outcome to serve its interests. What you've seen here is a collapse in American leadership, both at the political level and the military level. And what I'm saying about the accountability issue is we can't keep going that way. Unless there's accountability for these types of failures going forward, we're going to have even bigger failures in the future, and that's what I'm worried about. So, listen, listen. I know there's greater international relations minds than mine, but I, I have a huge passion for it. And to me, this is an insult of an exchange, and I want you to have at it. Cut 11. The Taliban, they continue to press forward because we have an administration that doesn't know how to confront an adversary, under, understanding that they do not respect weakness, they only respect strength. And, and it, it is so greatly unfortunate, the consequences, and I believe that you, sir, should resign. That would be leadership. I yield back. Uh, To the contrary, uh, Congressman, I believe that uh, there's nothing that uh, our strategic competitors like China or Russia uh, or our adversaries like uh, like Iran, like North Korea, would have liked more than for President Biden to have re-upped the war in Afghanistan for another 5, 10, 20 years to be bogged down in that conflict. Nothing they would have liked more. So if China had a choice between America having a base hundreds of miles from their border or having no base, having influence in the region or no influence, having be able to take out terrorists or not taking terrorists, do you really think that China would choose to have us in Afghanistan or out of Afghanistan? I mean, exactly right. And, and this is the sort of mindless rhetoric you're hearing from these guys. I mean, here's the other thing. You think China and Russia like the fact that we just got defeated in the original 9-11 war and that the Taliban, which remains closely allied with al-Qaeda to this day, just beat America in Afghanistan? Of course they love it. It diminishes America's power in numerous ways. It shows that America is feckless and leaderless. And that's the biggest thing here. Pardon me? I was just saying to 
Um, I was just saying to my um, to our producers, I go, this soundbite that you're giving me right now, it was going to help us all week, and I hit the wrong button. My fault. No, but, but what you're saying is just counter- – we just – no one ever capitalized on that statement. China wants us – would love to us be bogged down there. We don't have to be bogged down with 2,500 troops. We have an elite – we have a series of military bases and CIA bases we recently discovered that would have given us eyes and ears in the region. Now we have none. Tell me that China really pr- would prefer us in or out. Of course they want us out. Of course China wants us out. Does China prefer the American flag? flying over the very expensive American embassy in Kabul, or do they prefer the Islamic Emirate Afghanistan's victorious flag flying over the very expensive American embassy in Kabul? Of course they prefer the Taliban's flag. They've said that over and over again. You know, as a U.S. was groveling to the Taliban and and asking desperately for a ceasefire with the Afghan government, the now deposed Afghan government, what was those, those same Taliban delegation, what was it doing? It was going to meet with China and was actually paving the way for future economic relations so that China could have its One Belt, One Road initiative cut right through Afghanistan and receive this economic assistance and development assistance from Beijing. Why? Because China doesn't mind the anti-American terrorists in Afghanistan. As long as those terrorists don't come across China's borders and attack Beijing, they don't care. All they want to do is do business with another nasty actor in their region. And so, of course, they're celebrating today. The Chinese are celebrating. The Russians are celebrating. The Iranians are celebrating. The Pakistanis are celebrating. They're all celebrating America's defeat in Afghanistan. And the idea that that is not something um, to take, that we can just dismiss that and just pretend like it doesn't matter to me is really shows you just how much the leadership in Washington has failed. Lastly, how many Americans are left? How many green card? What, what do you think the numbers are of uh, SIVs, green card holders, and Americans left in Afghanistan? Brian, they don't know. Uh, you know, we've been working this issue very quietly, trying to help whoever we can, you know, just as a facilitation point, you know, you know, putting people in contact with one another. I don't really know how many Afghan, uh, Americans are left in Afghanistan, to be honest with you. I don't think they really know. I think they have um, an assessment in, you know, a relatively low assessment of 100 or a few hundred. It's not really clear at this point of Americans who want to get out. It's not really clear. But the problem is beyond that, of course, you have a lot of Afghans who worked with um, the Americans. And we know for a fact they're being systematically hunted down right now. And the idea that their lives um, don't matter, which is what Secretary Blinken and others are are really saying, um, I think is really inexcusable. It is. And for people to say that's not happening because the international pressure on the Taliban would keep them in line, uh, that does not pass the the laugh test. Uh, Tom, thanks. What do you do? Senior fellow of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, but more importantly uh, for this story, uh, senior editor for the Long War Journal. Tom, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, we come back to your calls, and then we have talked to Tim Green, and we'll give you the latest on these hearings. We'll bring back uh, the highlights and lowlights. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm very disappointed that Secretary Austin declined our request to testify today. A full accounting of the U.S. response to this crisis is not complete without the Pentagon, especially when it comes to understanding the complete collapse of the U.S. trained and funded. His decision not to appear before the committee will affect my personal judgment on Department of Defense nominees. I expect the secretary will avail himself to the committee in the near future. And if he does not, I may consider the use of committee subpoena power to compel him and others over the course of these last 20 years to testify. After this debacle, the Defense Department doesn't show up 
well, you have the Secretary of State, no problem, throwing the Defense Department on the bus. They never told us the Taliban was going to crash. The Intelligence Committee, uh, the Intelligence uh, uh, Division under the bus, they never told us this was going to happen or this was in danger of falling. Now that's what happens when only the State Department shows up. You know why Austin would just embarrass himself? This guy's out of his depth in the day he took the job. Um, he makes the most sense when he's muzzled with four masks. Tim, W-H-I-O. Hey, Tim. Hey, Brian, good to talk to you again. Uh, I don't even know where to start. I'm so frustrated with everything. But on this vaccine thing, um, you know, my whole family got vaccinated. My it, my daughter did not do well at all. She's 16. Um, and what I, I, I think we need the vaccines, but to have us lectured and then to let all these illegal people come into our country unvaccinated, I know, I know. getting on buses, shipping them. Why aren't we following these buses and finding out where they're being dumped? Are they being dumped in red states, you know, blue states? Um, I, I, you know, I just don't understand why the American people aren't in the streets about this. I know. I mean, we should fun. be. Uh, and I'll tell you what, the media is not covering it. We're trying to. Uh, we have drones. We have our own drone team right at the border. It's amazing what we're seeing. Thanks so much for the call. WHIL will be doing a hit for them tomorrow morning. Hey, uh, go to BrianKillMe.com, order any of my books, and weigh in on the, uh, the talk of the day. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I've uh, been good friends with Tim Green for a long time when he started broadcasting. Always knew about his career. He was on Oprah talking about how he was adopted as a kid, found his birth parents. He was a first-round draft pick out of Syracuse University. He's painted on the wall of the Carrier Dome, like with Jim Brown as some of the standout players to ever play for the Orange. And then he went on being drafted number one by Atlanta and then went on to, while at the same time, became a lawyer and a prolific writer, best-selling author multiple times. He's got a brand new book out. It's called Final Season. What makes it different is two years ago, Tim Green was diagnosed with ALS. We have to go through uh, different electronic equipment to do this interview, but he wrote this book literally with his eyes. Listen to the interview I was able to do yesterday to bring to you today. The name of the book, which I hope you order, is called Final Season. Tim Green began his football career as a linebacker and defensive end. Of course, he was a standout for Syracuse, first-round draft pick of the Atlanta Falcons, before becoming an attorney, an outstanding broadcaster, and a best-selling author. He's got another book coming out. It's called The Final Season. It is, I think, his best. It tells a deeply personal tale of a 12-year-old boy watching his father, a retired pro player, struggle uh, with ALS diagnosis. Although it's fictional, it's really based on him, his legendary football career, and he and his family coaching uh, their son, Ty, in their final season. Tim Green, along with Troy, uh, join us right now. You announced to the country a couple of years ago, uh, Tim, you had ALS. How are you doing with the challenge? Since then, I've lost the use of my voice and all my limbs. But I'm so grateful for the technology that allows me to write books and work at my law firm and communicate with you like I'm doing now. Understood. Hey, Troy, could you explain the technology that's allowing this to happen? Yeah, so he's got a tablet here that's uh, tracking his eyes. So when he looks at the screen, it looks similar to like a keyboard. 
And when he leaves his eyes idle on a letter for a certain amount of time, it'll select that letter. And then he has a, a button there he can click to speak. So let's talk about the final season. Tim, tell me about the book. The story is pretty close to what really happened to me and our three boys in our youngest son's final season of football. Because it's a middle grade novel, it's written from our 12-year-old son's viewpoint and how he copes with my physical deterioration and near death because of ALS over the course of a football season where he and his friends are chasing after an elusive championship trophy. Wow. So it's personal. Troy, you are coaching on the sidelines with your dad, right? So was your other brother? Yeah, I was. Yeah, was that yeah like? I was coaching the offense and he was coaching the defense. It was a different experience for sure. Um, we had coached the year before together and uh, just the nature of ALS. Uh, my dad, the year before, wasn't, um, um, wasn't as far along with, with ALS. If people want to join the fight against uh, ALS, where do you go to help? I wish they'd join me and make a donation through TackleALS.com or you could buy a copy of Final Season because I'm donating every dollar I earn from this book to TackleALS.com. Absolutely, and they are making progress, and the hope is that progress is going to be around to help Tim, uh, one of the great guys you ever meet. You're never going to meet somebody uh, more athletic better looking, a better writer, a better lawyer, and a better broadcaster. There's nothing Tim can't do, and he's proving it again uh, in the final season. So if you want to do something good for yourself and your family, uh, pick up final season and go to TackleALS.com. Uh, uh, Troy uh, and Tim, great job. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Congratulations on the final season. Goodbye, my friend. Thank you. Uh, so that's Tim Green. You can understand what he went through. Understand, too is he has to look up, he's got this flat screen, and he's able to answer, but he wanted the questions ahead of time. Not that he didn't know the answers, but he wanted to come up with his answers. And it takes time, obviously. So that's what we did in a post-tape, and I want to share with you. And the name of the book is The Final Season. More on that interview right now. I asked him about how we, got, uh, the, how, many, how we think he got the ALS. Also about youth sports today, why so few, uh, why fewer are playing today than they were really since 2008 when it peaked. Now it seems to be on the other end. Why is that? Here's what Tim had to say. There's no sports for the average athlete anymore. And for the working class parent, they can't write big checks. What do you think? I get that. The extra coaching and the tournaments and the travel teams. But two sports where that's not much of an issue are football and basketball. It's so true. And, and, Tim, how do you think your book will reverse that trend? I hope that parents will leave it up to their kids what they want to play or don't play. I make it very clear in final season that had I wanted to play football, that I was all for it, despite what the game did to me. If I played today... This never would have happened with the restrictions on hitting and practice and the concussion protocols. No, 
I wouldn't be sitting here in this chair. Well, and if I could just take a break from the next question to ask Troy a question. Troy, do you guys in your family and your doctors believe ALS came on because of football? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's kind of two different types of ALS that you can you can have. One would be if it's in your DNA, and the other one would be if it was caused by an external source. Um, and and my dad did not have it in his DNA, and and uh, his doctor um, told us that it was from football and the head collisions. So there you go. Uh, I think you know, just a, an interview with a guy that just uh, as courageous as he was on the field, as much as he's willing to take risks going to law school while being a number one draft pick and a broadcaster, hosting an inside edition, writing these books at the same time, pursuing his birth parents after being adopted, raising six kids, having a thriving law practice while doing everything else on the side, buying buildings, real estate, everything else that he was doing, uh, coaching his kids, uh, all of them. He's got six kids. One's a vet. Uh, one's working uh, with uh, with uh, the NFL. So you got another, uh, his two sons helping him out uh, with his multiple businesses uh, at home. So everybody is busy rallying around him, but he does not blink an eye. Okay, what does it take? What can I do today? What can I do today? And, of course, on top of that, I asked him about the challenge, knowing that if you have ALS, you can't get a cold. You get a cold, you go to the hospital. He had pneumonia a few days ago to the point where they were going to cancel the interview. He rallied, got out of the hospital, did the interview with us on Monday. So it's a pretty amazing guy. Uh, I think it's pretty special, too. So if you're looking to do something good, go and order the final season. Uh, uh, and he also, in it, they talk about his story, and they write these books. They're written for 7th to ninth graders, or like 6th to ninth grade specifically. But you'll not regret reading it. And they write it from the kid's perspective. So that's how he does the children's book. No one else was doing it to the point where Derek Jeter looked him up. And Derek Jeter said, hey, Tim, you got this market cornered. I want to do something for kids. Can we write some of these books together? And they started doing some baseball books. And they got the premises from Derek Jeter and his team. And they put out some together. And then uh, Tim got diagnosed with ALS. And that put all that on hold. So now he's kind of working on his own. Uh, meanwhile, we're still watching these hearings. Bob Menendez is running it. The as chairman, he's starting with the questioning. Everyone read opening statements, and Senator Menendez is critical of uh, the dismount from Afghanistan, uh, the disengagement with that country, and in turn the region. And the Secretary of State is doing everything he said to say. There's nothing else we could have done different. It was always going to be bad, and this was the other team. It was the other regime's plan, and this was not my idea. But I do think it was a good idea to leave because China and Russia wanted us to go anyway. We all know that's not true. Yesterday, uh, Congressman Brian Mast uh, was just furious when he left the hearing after getting his seeing non-answers and trying to just make a statement because he served in Afghanistan, lost both his legs there. Here's how he ended uh, when the microphones were with him as he walked out of the room. Cut 12. What do you want to hear that from the Biden administration? What should they be doing? Um, two words. I resign. Those would be the two words I'd like He's to hear. He's not going to resign, though. You know that. I know that. Uh, they're too so arrogant to resign. Right. And here's Michael Waltz. Cut 14. I think the thing that was so disturbing was, was we didn't hear a plan for going forward. We didn't hear how are we going to get the remaining Americans out, which I think is much higher than 100. Uh, it's in the several hundreds. We didn't hear green card holders in the thousands, SIBs in the tens of thousands, a counterterrorism plan because we're rolling into a terrorist super state. And what we did hear was basically a shoulder shrug when asked, well, is this now, is the Taliban now the government of Afghanistan? And, and he replied with this kind of haphazard, well, they won a civil war. I guess they're the de facto government. 
Uh, and now we're seeing tens of millions of dollars of aid going in. Just uh, so discouraging. So we're watching now. Uh, Senator Menendez says, well, the SIV program was really backed up. They had to have backlog. Well, the reason why the SIV program uh, exists is to make sure if you are going to get this elite status to get into the number one country in the world, that you indeed were helping us fight a war, not just working in a motor vehicle or, uh, or washing cars. And that's why it was extensive. There was a reason for it. When we come back, Varney and company, I'll do a simulcast, and then I'll finish up with your calls. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks for being here. Now, The Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Just watching some layup from Senator Menendez to Anthony Blinken. I'll get back to that in just a second as the Secretary of State pretends he didn't just embarrass the country on the world stage in a way in which we're not going to recover from for decades. Hopefully other senators like Rubio and Johnson and Mitt Romney are here to play as well as Ted Cruz who can ask a crisp question when he chooses to. I want to make this guy answer. He has to answer. He wasn't uh, able to, no one's really able to score points and, and put him on the ropes like he deserved with just three minutes. So let's listen to Stuart Varney now. Let's watch Brian FBN. Kilmeade. All right, Brian. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner. He says COVID vaccines could be approved for children 5 to 11 years of age by the end of October. Are we going to require vaccines for youngsters in schools? After all, we do already require some vaccines for school children. Ready for a war. I mean, for number, number one, Dr. Scott, Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb said in the same interview, it is counterproductive, if I could paraphrase, for the president to come down and put mandates. It makes the job higher, harder for them to convince people and explain to people why they should take the vaccine. But when you come down and ha- with the hammer and say, you better take the vaccine, it makes people throw up their hands like Governor Hutchinson and doctors like Scott Gottlieb on the five and up vaccine that they should be ready in a month. Good luck with that. They're telling a bunch of adults, don't go on planes soon. Don't go on trains. Don't go on buses. Uh, don't go to restaurants unless you have a vaccine card. Don't go to work. You could choose to get fired. Nurses, don't go to the hospital. You might choose to quit. Okay, fine. Now you're going to tell a bunch of five-year-olds, don't go to first grade. Don't go to kindergarten uh, because your parents have decided that this drug that's only been around for uh, nine months, ten months, that they were queasy about taking, maybe they don't want their five-year-old to take. That's called effective parenting. We never got in between health care and a parent, as far as I know. If a doctor, your pediatrician, should be deciding whether somebody in your family gets a shot, not 78-year-old Joe Biden, okay, and not a FDA that is so politicized people are quitting when they came out with a ridiculous booster shot proclamation two weeks ago, and not a CDC that takes their orders from the teachers union. Don't tell a parent, especially a first time parent, okay, you know that five year old? Tell him to put his school book down, take off his sweater, roll up his flannel shirt, and take a shot that we only know, of, we only have a year's studies to work with. And by the way, we don't get our own studies. We go to Israel for our studies because evidently yeah. we're too busy. I gotta move on to a different subject. The White House abruptly cut off President Biden's feed yesterday when he was in the middle of talking. Watch this. Can I ask you a question? Of course. One of the things that uh, I've been working on with some others. That's it. 
That's it. They just cut it out. They pulled the plug, almost literally, swung the camera away, couldn't hear what the president was saying. They don't want him to go off script, which raises the age-old question, who's really in charge here, Brian? It was 10 days ago when Politico did that story, and they said that staffers cringe or mute the phone, the TV when he starts taking questions. Uh, they, they just quiver because they have no idea how he's going to upend their agenda. Think about some of the things he has said. Al-Qaeda is no longer in Afghanistan. We don't have troops into Syria. There is no danger of uh, the 300,000-man uh, Afghan force falling to the Taliban. It is not inevitable. There's so much that he said is just wrong uh, that China does, doesn't want us, wants us bogged down inside that country. Really? China's loving the fact they're about to take over Bagram Air Base. You really think that that's the case? Uh, that Afghanistan, you know, uh, al-Qaeda threat is, is spread out around the world. Really? It's pretty much concentrated in now Terra University in Afghanistan. So I, to me, I don't know the logistics. Maybe it was a legitimate technological thing. But it falls into pattern for what we saw. And you see how angry he gets when he takes questions. You remember after the Russia, yep. uh, you know, the Russia summit and everything else. It, it, it just he is his he undermined his own agenda. He's got a he's got a wicked temper. He's always quick to attack. And even though he apologizes later, I think that's the real him. This benevolent guy that always has a big heart. He has a big heart to his life story. But I'm not too sure he's got a big heart to everybody else's life story. I hear you. Brian Kilmeade, thanks very much. I'm sure we'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thanks, dude. Still ahead. Yeah, so we continue to monitoring uh, what's going on with um, continue to monitor what's going on with this. Uh, now we have a Republican final answer a question. The ranking member there is Senator Rich um, that we could uh, dip into. But we'll have some in the final hour. In fact, do you want to dip into a little bit of his answer? Let's listen. Single one of the of the dissent channel cables that we've gotten during this administration, I've responded uh, to every single one. I factored what I read and heard into um, uh, into my thinking uh, and, to, and into my actions. But the legitimacy of the of the channel, the ability for people to be able to, uh, with confidence, uh, share their thoughts, uh, share their views, even when they run counter uh, to what uh, their uh, their seniors uh, have said or the policies being prescribed. Uh, it's vitally important that we protect that channel, protect its integrity, uh, and it is designed by its very regulations uh, only to be shared with senior officials uh, in the department. And what I don't want to see uh, is some kind of chilling effect going forward uh, that says to those who would think of writing a, a cable in the future that uh, this, uh, this will uh, you know, get out widely, be, uh, be distributed uh, in ways that, um, uh, that, would have that, uh, that would have that chilling effect. Do you admit that you received a dissent cable in July signed by two dozen diplomats that warned about the imminent colla- uh, catastrophic collapse that was coming in Afghanistan? Uh, Senator, I certainly uh, received this, uh, the cable in, uh, in mid-July. I read it. I responded to it. I factored uh, its uh, contents into my, my thinking. There you and go. What- and one of his chief arguments was no one forecasted the collapse of the Afghan government. In the dissent channel that he proudly went on into a way too long in the description of what a dissent channel is. It turns out there were people that questioned how long that Afghan government would stay in place, and they worked for him. Let alone the Defense Department, if they were given sodium pentothal, probably spoke up to him. But he didn't want to hear it because his boss wanted out of Afghanistan. Go to BrianKilmead.com and find out more. 
from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Dr. Marty McCary, a Fox News contributor, surgeon, and a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins University. He'll be with us soon. Uh, and Mark Thiessen is standing by. So before we go any further, let me just tell you what's unwinding right now. The Senate uh, committee, the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, is now having a chance to ask Anthony Blinken questions. I would say Senator Menendez's question is a little bit more aggressive than every other Democrat who basically just blamed Trump the entire time. Senator Ben Cardin's pretending as if uh, there was really no big deal of leaving Afghanistan, brought up 2002 and George Bush's decision to go into Iraq. Please, that has nothing to do with how what happened this August. Uh, and I'll talk to uh, Mark Thiessen, whose head must be ready to explode on that. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There's more mandates I wish you would have given. I think mandating vaccines for air travel, train travel, or interstate bus travel would also be important. He is such an embarrassment. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, vaccine mandate mania. Joe Biden decides to divide in order to distract, mock rather than lead. Get ready for planes, buses, and trains to demand a vaccine to ride. Is that okay in America? Big Pharma gets a green light on vaccines for five and up. Are you ready to have hear about a mandate for your kid before he or she goes to kindergarten? Number two. It's going to be a lot more than 3.5 over eight or 10 years because it'll continue. All these programs will never come off. They haven't even scored out that far. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, that's a social reform. Yeah, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, I have an idea. Let's raise taxes on everyone. Use money to pay for everyone else, cradle to grave uh, funding. That's recon- that's the reconciliation package being discussed on the Hill. Only Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema stand in the way. Uh, let's hope they stand strong. Number one. How meticulous was the planning for the Trump administration declared uh, May 1st uh, withdrawal? We inherited a deadline. We did not inherit a plan. So <laughs> no, pl- I, I, no plan at all. Uh, it's amazing that it wasn't much, much worse. You, what a joke. Congressman Sherman trying to make excuses for this administration. Hey, how does he even sleep at night? Blinking filibusters through a speed dating format in the House. Congressional hearings. But we got the latest right now. We're pulling some of the cuts over the past hour, and we'll bring you the latest as it happens. Mark Thiessen, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Good to be with you, Brian. First off, uh, how would you characterize yesterday? I found it unbelievably frustrating. Three minutes to question a guy that's a human filibuster. Yeah, and, you know, what was incredibly frustrating, too, is how the Democrats are just playing defense for Joe Biden. You know, this was one of the things that was uh, what showed what a disaster the Afghan debacle was, was that the criticism initially was just bipartisan in nature, right? Uh, you know, he was getting hit on Fox. He was getting hit on MSNBC. He was getting hit in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Everybody agreed that this was a this was a debacle whether you wanted to get out of afghanistan or not this was not the way we were supposed to do it and now they've circled the wagons you know the 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 the, the uh, it's over and they want to put it behind us and so they're defending biden uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not doing their oversight responsibility. Uh, it's, and uh, it, it's just shameful. Uh, it's so depressing that this has turned into the normal partisan uh, thing as opposed to maybe for the first time we could come together and agree that this was done wrong and that we need to get to the bottom of why and how uh, in a bipartisan way. And right. Politics is so broken, we can't do that. And they say, well, there was no plan, just a deadline. Really? 
There was no plan. What was the plan at the border? What was the plan when it came to our economy? What was the plan with the pandemic? They took great relish in blowing up everything that Trump did. But here we couldn't do anything because, you know, Mark, he wanted to get out of Afghanistan. He couldn't care less how it was done. He wanted to be a hero on 9-11. Instead, he was afraid to give a live speech because he was going to be heckled so much. Instead, they're screaming blank Joe Biden at football games in front of capacity crowds because he put together a national international embarrassment. And by the way, no, the Secretary it, of Defense turned down the request to come in front of the House and Senate. How is that allowed? That that shouldn't be allowed, and it should be, and he, he will have to testify eventually. He can run, but he can't hide. I mean, look, you're absolutely right. There's literally no other policy of the Trump administration that Joe Biden stuck to, but this was the one thing that they had to stick to. And by the way, you know, he, he said we couldn't extend the deadline. We had to leave. They did extend the deadline. The deadline in the agreement was May 1. They extended it to August 31st. They could spend it to August 31st. They could spend it to they could spend it to January. They could send it to February. Why would we withdraw in the middle of the summer fighting season, right? Instead of withdrawing in the winter when the fighting ends in Afghanistan, the snows come and the Taliban are hiding in their caves, and there will be more time to get everybody out, and more time for the Afghan resistance and the Afghan government and their forces to prepare for the Taliban offensive. There's only one reason because Joe Biden wanted to use the anniversary of 9-11 as a political prop. He wanted to take that anniversary, that sacred day, and turn it into a day where he could declare victory for having ended the longest, America's longest war on the day that it began. And he, as a result, he betrayed hundreds of Americans who were left behind, thousands of American uh, uh, permanent residents who were left behind, and Afghan allies, thousands of them. In fact, it looks like not only did we leave Afghan allies behind, we, made a, we might have assassinated one of them on, on the way out with, with that drone, incompetent drone strike. Which, by the way, you know, you want to talk about the over the horizon capability? We still had a CIA base in Kabul when that happened. We had the, we had the Eagle's Nest a CIA base. We had intelligence boots on the ground monitoring that operation. We don't have any boots on the ground, and, and we screwed that up. How the hell are we going to know who is the enemy and who isn't uh, from thousands and thousands of miles away in a landlocked country uh, where we have the only way to fly in is through over either over Iran or Pakistan? Uh, it's it's and and no intelligence on the ground. It's an absolute just dis- travesty. Watching Marco Rubio, and we'll bring some sound bites a little bit later. Just outline how they should have been able to predict that Kabul would fall. How every provincial capital was basically going down without much of a fight. And then if you look at the transcripts of those phone calls with uh, Milley and and President Biden, they were saying, "I can't, can, you know, I need air power. I got, I'm being invaded by ten to fifteen thousand uh, who are being armed, serviced, and supported by Pakistan." And he turned him down. Of course he knew things was going to go bad. What I heard also was Senator Rich said there was a there is a uh, pipeline where whistleblowers can stand up and speak up about a policy they disagree with. He got it in July saying this Afghan yeah. government's not going to be able to stand. What's his answer to that? I'm very happy that people are able to speak up. I want to be uh, in charge of a department that's able to speak up. Listen to this. Panel is something that I place tremendous value uh, and importance on. Uh, it's it's a it's a way um, for people in the State Department to speak the truth as they see it uh, to power. Uh, and these uh, cables, I've read every single one of the of the dissent channel cables that we've gotten during this administration. I've responded uh, to every single one. I factored what I read and heard into um, uh, into my thinking uh, and, to, and into my actions. But the legitimacy. Of the of the channel, the ability for people to be able to, uh, with confidence, uh, share their thoughts, 
uh, share their views, even when they run counter uh, to what uh, their, uh, their seniors uh, have said or the policies being prescribed. So he went on to say they said that this, this government would fall, uh, basically, and you're overestimating their ability to fight back. How do you say that nobody predicted this, knowing that the Scent Channel was there? Because, because you can't, and that's why they haven't. But they were, that's why they haven't released it to the committee or released it to the public, because they were warned. They knew. They didn't care. They didn't care about the consequences. And I'll tell you something. You know, if you if you look back, Brian, we we moved the we we stopped fighting the war in Afghanistan in 2014. We handed the combat mission over to the Afghan security forces. And what we provided them were things that only the United States can uh, can do, and which, by the way, which we provide to allies like France and and Britain and other and other allies, the the South Koreans, uh, anybody who's 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 involved in combat, they have they get this help from the from the U.S. We provide them with mission planning. We provide them with intelligence. And in the case of Afghans, we provided them with with air power. Right. That was the deciding factor. And from 2014, we went down to something like like uh, I think like 15,000 troops. Taliban did not take a single provincial capital. We went down to 10,000 troops. They didn't take a single provincial capital. We went down to 5,000 troops. They didn't take a single provincial capital. Trump brought it down to 2,500 troops. They didn't take a single provincial capital until we withdrew that air power and intelligence planning and all those things and that the, the Afghans had trained with. And I will tell you something, the people who are who are criticizing the Afghan security forces for folding, there's not a single U.S. ally in the world, with the, with the exception of Israel, who could defend itself against an assault like this without U.S. help. And the New York Times reported buried in a story the other day that even after we abandoned their country to the Taliban, even after we pulled out all of that stuff, Afghan special forces were working with the CIA to help exfiltrate Americans from Kabul up until the last minute, the Afghan security forces, saving the lives of American citizens. So this calumny against the Afghan security forces that they wouldn't fight, that the Biden administration puts out is such a lie. Uh, and so they, they, they couldn't fight because they were abandoned, because they were take, they, their, their strategic advantage over the Taliban was taken away. Their weapons were taken away. The air cover they were t- was taken away. Um, and even to the last minute, they were helping evacuate and save American lives. Right. Uh, when there were 12,500 left uh, for Kabul, for some reason, they got tapped out. Uh, they're after their Gahani left. And they said there's no reason to fight. There's no government to fight for. It just left. And I'm not yeah. sure that they would have been able to defend Kabul. But it's pretty telling. The Washington Post writes that story that Kabul, that, uh, that Berard of the Butcher— called the State Department and say, what do you want us to do? They're stripping the ministries. Either we go in or you go in. And they said, you go in, we just want the airport. To me, that's where I would start this whole thing. Which is why we lost 13 Americans. Look, the Taliban did not want to engage the U.S. in combat. They did not. They knew that we were leaving. They knew that they would get Kabul eventually. They were not going to attack us if we said we're ta- we're securing Kabul. We would have controlled. We would have secured the green zone. We could have secured the road to the airport and the area outside the airport. We could have set up U.S. checkpoints at all those places. The Taliban would not have attacked us, and we could have gotten everybody out that we needed to get out through that. And and it would have been a whole different thing. And oh, by the way, we would have stopped a suicide bomber from getting into the periphery of the airport. Uh, so you know the idea that we that we that Joe Biden knowingly made a choice to put the security of our troops in the hands of the Taliban and the Haqqani network is one is is an absolute dereliction of duty. No question. Mike Morell said this. Cut eighteen. I think that the Taliban winning the war in Afghanistan. And then the way our exit happened has absolutely inspired jihadists all over the world. Um, 
The Taliban is saying, we just didn't defeat the United States. We defeated NATO. We defeated the world's greatest military power ever. So there's a celebration going on. We defeated the Soviet Union, then it fell. Now we've defeated NATO, right? Maybe they can fall too. I think not only will jihadists be inspired, but a lot of them are going to come to Afghanistan to be part of the celebration, to be, hard, to be part of Jihadist Central. So after 9-11, they all scattered from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see a flow back in, and that's one of the things that makes Afghanistan more dangerous than other spots on the planet. Is anything he said inaccurate? A hundred percent correct. And and the one thing that he didn't say, though maybe he says it elsewhere in the interview, is that we have no capability of getting them. You know, Joe Biden talks about this over the rising threat. He says, well, we t- we we take we strike terrorists in Syria, we strike terrorists in in Iraq, in Yemen, and East Africa every day, and we don't have boots on the ground. Number one, we do have boots on the ground. We have we have, Donald Trump left nine hundred troops in Syria. We have about six thousand troops in Iraq. We have troops in East Africa. Uh, and, but the other thing is. All those countries, if you look on it, you just have to look on a map. They all have coastlines. We can put an aircraft carrier on their coast and, bl- and bomb the hell out of them. Afghanistan is a landlocked country thousands of miles from the sea. The only way in is either over Pakistan or Iran. So you need to, you need to one, we have no boots on the ground, so we don't have any intelligence of where the terrorists are. They've got the Hindu Kush Mountains, which means we're finding terrorist needles in 15,000-foot haystacks. And that was hard to do with boots on the ground anyway. We, we ha- if we do send, uh, let's say, a, a special operations team in, or if we were to send a, a, a manned plane over, to take something out and we lose them, if something goes wrong, we have no extraction capability because we have no bases nearby. And we have to fly all the way from the Persian Gulf, hours to get to Afghanistan. Even if we do get intelligence on the target, it might not be there by the time we get back. And we'd have no idea knowing whether the target is, an, is a friend or foe. We just, we just killed a, a, an aid worker in Kabul when we had boots on the ground. So the idea that we can take these guys out from, from, a, from, a, from a distance is a fantasy. I don't think there's any question. Uh, so we'll see what we'll see what, go, what goes on from here. So I want you to hear what President Bush said. I know you used to be a speechwriter. And what do you think he meant by this? We have seen growing evidence that the dangers to our country can come not only across borders, but from violence that gathers within. There is little cultural overlap between violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are children of the same foul spirit, and it is our continuing duty to confront them. So, uh, people, he's a lot of people believe we're referring to January sixth. What do you think? Uh, one, I think he shouldn't have said it because uh, I don't think that we can compare anything that's happened here in the United States to 9-11. Thousands of people killed, uh, to, uh, the ter- Twin Towers brought down and all the rest of it. I think it's in, the, in, a, in a moment that stands alone. But also, I'm surprised that the people are assuming that this was about Trump or about January 6th because uh, so I recall that, that those words apply just as equally to Antifa. Um, as they do to any any rioters on the in the Capitol on January sixth, all the people who were tearing down statues uh, and monuments, uh, all the people who were attacked, the, the people in Seattle who were who were literally at the, you know firebombing a, a federal courthouse. There's a lot of extremism on both sides, 
uh, here in the United States. And I, I, I find it telling that people immediately right. uh, assume that was January 6th. It, it applies equally to the left and to the right. And we should confront violent extremism on the left and on the right uh, right here in the United States and reject it. Oh, it's education. Thanks so much, Mark Thiessen. Appreciate it. Back with your calls in just a moment. Dr. Barney McCary, bottom of the hour. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Do you admit that you received a dissent cable in July signed by two dozen diplomats that warned about the imminent uh, catastrophic collapse that was coming in Afghanistan? Uh, Senator, I certainly uh, received this, uh, the cable in uh, in mid-July. I read it. I responded to it. I factored uh, its uh, contents into my my thinking. It did not uh, suggest that the government and security forces were going to collapse prior to our departure. It did express real concerns about the durability of that government and forces after our departure. You're telling us that, but we have uh, been told by others that it was, it was significantly different than what you're saying. Uh, also, we really would like to see the response to that because I think history is going to be uh, interested in that particular cable and uh, your response to it. Yeah, let's see it. And also, let's see, we saw the transcript to the uh, the phone call, too. Now I'm watching Anthony Blinken get directly tested, uh, tested by Senator Ron Johnson, who said flat out, you said it was not your decision, State Department decision to get a Bagram Airport, but it was the president's decision to, to protect the embassy with a certain amount of troops and uh, or or Bagram Airport, leaving them no choice but to leave that uh, leave that air base because he didn't have the troop levels because the president put a threshold on that because he wanted to go out. So you could say the Defense Department made that decision. Not really. When you gave them those limitations, they had no choice. That's how they're getting around it. The American people have to be smart enough to understand when someone doesn't want to answer a question or answers a different question. It's because they don't like that answer. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The vaccines uh, for the audience are incredibly effective at protecting people against severe disease. If you are vaccinated, you don't need to be protected against severe disease. The vaccines already do that. The, The message that we have to protect the vaccinated is essentially a message that is going to undermine confidence in the vaccine unnecessarily and is is a dangerous message, I think, and that, that the vice president should retract. The exact message the vice president tweeted out, we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. How does that make any sense? Dr. Marty McCary must be pulling his hair out with this. He's a surgeon, a professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. He's the author of the book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare. Dr. McCary, it's been a very... Uh, it's been a, a very aggravating week coming from this White House as it relates to uh, our health. They're deciding that everyone better get the shot or you got to either now they're going into our business, our occupation. And I, I think you know this. A lot of nurses are deciding to quit. A lot of healthcare workers are deciding to quit. A lot of people are saying, I'm not going to be forced to be vaccinated. I quit my job because of this upcoming mandate that the president decreed. Is this going to help? Well, I've been following the numbers, Brian, and one of the goals of the vaccine mandate by the White House, recognizing it may not withstand legal challenges, was that the buzz that you may need the vaccine in order to keep your job was going to get people to get out there and get the jab. Looking at the numbers, 
in the days since the announcement, which uh, was five days ago, vaccinations are way down. They're not, they're not even level from where they were. They're down. So it really has polarized people. And I think people with positions against just the government, separate from the vaccine's effectiveness, are more entrenched right now. So it's backfiring. You think we should get vaccinated, right? Absolutely. For non-immune adults, if you haven't had natural immunity, those are the folks right now dying at a very high rate, a thousand people a day. And that's where we got to put all of our efforts. Everything else is a gigantic distraction. You know, the unvaccinated somehow are posing a public health threat to the vaccinated or a cloth mask on a three-year-old child. These are distractions from our, our main focus. So now we have a que- the, uh, the question of, for before I leave the mandate question, I would just want you to hear uh, Joe Biden the other night, cut 29. I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. We're going to protect vaccinated workers from unvaccinated co-workers. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. Okay, this was him earlier, along with Saki, Pelosi, Fauci, cut 30. I don't think it should be mandatory. I wouldn't demand it to be mandatory, but I would do everything in my power. Just like I don't think masks have to be made mandatory nationwide. Can we mandate vaccines across the country? No, that's not a role that the federal government, I think, even has the power to make. We cannot require someone to be vaccinated. That's just not what we can do. It is a matter of privacy to know who is or who isn't. No, definitely not. You don't want to mandate and try and force anyone to take a vaccine. We'd... So we're at 75% of the country eligible has gotten at least one shot. Uh, and they're saying desperate times, desperate measures. They've totally flipped. What happened? <laughs> First of all, Brian, that's an amazing clip of a litany of yeah. all of these figures talking about how we would just never do this mandate. And here we do it basically on the one yard line because we're never gonna, we're never gonna get to a hundred percent. Even the required vaccines in children reach a 90% compliance rate. Otherwise people just don't do it or they have medical exemptions. So if we're at 76% now, and our goal is to be in the eighties and roughly half of the unvaccinated have natural immunity, they're, do, they're using a very heavy hammer for a couple percentage points. And Joe Biden said in his speech announcing the mandate that the unvaccinated were preventing us from turning the corner. Well, how's he going to feel about the mandate in a month and a half or two months when we're at very low levels of COVID, which is what Delta is showing in India? It's kind of a boom and bust. So when we're at very low levels and this mandate finally gets through its writing process, and the legal challenges, and then add a few weeks for people to come and get it, and then the immune system to kick in, doesn't happen instantly, we're going to be at very low levels. How's it going to feel about the mandate then? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so we'll we'll see where, where this goes. Bottom line is there are breakthrough cases on the vaccine, and now we're looking at booster shots to boost the vaccine, and what's driving you crazy and what you wrote about is why are we looking to Israel for an example? Why aren't we doing our own studies? We've been at this for a year and a half. we got the American people to study. Is anyone doing that? Can Anthony Fauci hop off television for a second and look at a pie chart? I don't think his secretary would even recognize him now. I don't know if he's ever been in the office in the last year and a half <laughs> because— 
If you look at what we've been doing as a medical establishment, the NIH and CDC together have about 41,000 employees, and they have about uh, $57 billion in funding. What are they using that money for? Well, they spent twice as much money on aging research. They're spending money on studying Mexican hairless dogs. Meanwhile, we have no idea how COVID spread for the first year. And if you look at all the good research right now, as you said, it's coming out of Israel. The only randomized cluster trial on masks came out of Bangladesh. Why are we getting all of our learnings from Israel and Bangladesh and not the United States? We're the United States of America. This is a disgrace. And if there was ever a message to Congress, the message right now is that our CDC has failed in its primary task, and it needs to be completely overhauled. Absolutely. So I want to turn to the next big struggle, and that is five-year-olds. Now five-year-olds are going to have an option, we understand, unless you want to disabuse me of this, in a few weeks of getting five and up, of getting this vaccine. Should they? Would you as a parent recommend it? And have we worked on the dosage enough to understand fully how it's going to affect kids? Well, I will tell you this, that the companies saw, at least Pfizer, saw these complications after the second dose in teenagers uh, sprout up around the country. And they went back and basically said, and I'm going to paraphrase, oh, my God, we got the dosing a little too high. That's what I believe they how they reacted. Let's go back and revise the dosing in the kids under 12. So they came in with a much lower dose than they previously intended. And we'll see what the data shows. It's not even out yet. It's amazing how many people have a strong opinion when the data have not even been released. I mean, basically, the Biden administration has said kids will need this and we're probably going to require it. They haven't even seen the data. It hasn't even been published. I think in teenagers right now, if they've not had COVID in the past and you want to vaccinate a teen, I would only do one dose. And if in a month they have a big press conference and they say, we're now going to make five-year-olds eligible, what would you tell a parent that made an appointment to see you or a friend of yours at a barbecue that said, should I do this? Well, I would tell them that a month from now, probably 50 to 75% of all kids in America will have had it. I think the risk of COVID, they should know, in a child who's uh, not healthy with a pre-existing condition might be one in a quarter million. In a healthy child, it might be one in 10 million, or it may never have happened. We don't even know if a healthy kid has ever died. They need to know those statistics. And I think most importantly, Brian, to answer your question, they should know that this trial that is being used to justify the vaccine in kids five through 12 included about 2000 children. So they, they should know we're going to learn what we, what we learned from 2000 kids. It's not a big trial. Not big enough. Not big enough. One in they, they say, and you tell me if these numbers are not correct. One in four new COVID cases are kids cases. Is that different from the original virus COVID-19 virus is the Delta have different stats and results uh, a different effect on kids than the original COVID-19? It's not more dangerous. We are seeing it just rip through the schools. And the schools sometimes are doing everything humanly possible. I mean, they're practically putting the kids in their own astronaut suit and keeping them, you know, 10 miles from the other kids. And it's still ripping through the schools. I'm not sure it's avoidable for a kid. Um, And you can still take mitigation steps. But 
um, 25 million out of the 52 million school-aged children probably have had COVID. Remember, we have only diagnosed about 10 to 15% of kids with COVID, but we're only capturing one in five to one in 10 true cases because most kids are asymptomatic. All right, uh, so we'll see where this stands. You believe Delta's waning? Because last week, Dr. Scott Gottlieb said that Delta has not really hit the Northeast yet. Yeah, the Northeast could be in for a bump. Now, it's not going to be as bad as we've seen in the Southeast because there's higher vaccination rates in the Northeast, but it's also their flu season coming up. So um, I think we should not be alarmed if we do see an increase in cases in the Northeast, but I don't think they're going to be so-called spikes or surges. I think it's going to be a rolling increase like we see with a mild flu season. The South is on its way down, and if we want to know what's going to happen with Delta, just look at the first couple states that were affected with the Delta wave because Delta is the same everywhere. It's just staggered. So what we've seen is Missouri and Arkansas, the first states, are down 20 to 30 percent from their peaks. And if we look at India, it could be a real boom and bust where it just burns through the population so fast. The decline could be very rapid. So we keep hearing about hospitals being overcrowded. The story in Nebraska ended up being wrong. Uh, we heard Idaho now, hospitals. What is the situation with hospitals that you know of? Do you see a great many of them, people reaching out to you, even anecdotally saying we're having a huge problem here? People forget that hospitals are normally crowded. No, hospitals normally have very little space. I mean, they, they operate in a business model with just-in-time capacity and have for 20 years. So you, if you have three people walk into a normal everyday hospital or ICU in America that could strain the hospital. So what hospitals are doing in areas where there's a lot of COVID patients, and that is true, especially in rural areas in the Southeast where they're getting hammered by COVID right now, is that they're stopping some of the elective surgery and some of the uh, stuff that's uh, that can wait a little bit. And I think they're going to end up needing to wait a month or two until it gets to a better place. Um, on booster shots, where do you stand, Dr. McCarry? Would you Are you getting one? Definitely not. 100 percent not. And now my situation is a little different. I took the second dose of my Pfizer vaccine three months after the first dose, which is how we should have told everyone in America to have taken it. And I still tell people, wait three months for your second dose unless you had COVID in the past, because you need to space out the doses. That's how you get durable immunity. And the virology geniuses are now acknowledging that when you put the first two doses three and four weeks apart, it functions as one dose. So it's no surprise that the new data out of Israel is showing that for people over 60, that they do have an, a slight benefit to getting that booster because it's it functions really as a second dose. So in people over 60, I think it's reasonable to start thinking about it, but you're talking about a minimal benefit. You're already very well protected against COVID with the uh, two-dose regimen that you already have in your system. Dr. McCurry, I guess, a couple more questions. Dr. McCurry, why is Regeneron not in every hospital? Why is it not in every doctor's office? So don't people want to make money? Isn't it true that it's effective? Isn't it true that every time you have a VIP, they get this, they get Regeneron like the President of the United States? It's about a 15% real direct survival benefit. So we do see death rates go down with Regeneron. So why not give it routinely? And so we are seeing it adopted more broadly, but the FDA made it very difficult to give Regeneron initially. It's an inf it's not a pill, you know, it's an infusion. You sit down, they want you to 
be observed for like an hour after you have it. It's, you know, it's like overly excessive. What, what are we doing? Creating all these burdens and rules and regulations. People forget that there's a half dose in the vaccine vial uh, after you uh, use the four doses that it comes with. Doctors wanted to pull those two half doses into a additional dose to increase our nation's vaccine supply by 15%. And the FDA said no. That, that this is the kind of regulatory nonsense that makes the practice of medicine very difficult. And the FDA should be held accountable. Absolutely. And lastly, um, I want you to hear this exchange on an um, NSM, um, MSNBC, Cut 28. I'm hearing anecdotally through people I know about breakthrough cases that are really serious that uh, end up with people being on ventilators. These are people who are vaccinated but still got COVID. What is the potential that this spirals beyond Delta to monster variant? Well, there's always a risk of as you get more circulation of virus in the community that you'll get enough accumulation of new mutations to get a variant intentionally different than the ones we're seeing now. Delta has the capability, uh, unlike Alpha, of transmitting extraordinarily readily and efficiently from person to person. That is the reason why we've seen that surge that we've been through over the last few months. Your answer? It's just, a, it's just amazing to hear these questions that he gets asked, sort of, will you speculate about a variant that could be the kiss of death for the for planet Earth. How about, uh, you know, what was your role in creating this variant in funding the Wuhan lab? It's just unbelievable to me. There are a million viruses on planet Earth, Brian, and none of them have evaded the life-protecting uh, uh, effect of immunity. And with the severe illnesses, we don't see it with COVID-19. So I think mm. we can feel good about the immune protection we have against future variants. It would be interesting if um, Mika Brzezinski asked him about influenza, right? Could we have an influenza variant that could uh, you know, be dangerous? They would never talk like this. We'd never have vaccine right. mandates for influenza. We'd never have mask mandates for influenza. Dr. Marty McCary, always educational. Thanks so much. Pick up the price we pay. It's the name of his book. Thanks, doctor. Thanks, Brian. Back to wrap up the hour. This is Brian Kilmeade. Show. See you on the other side. talk show that's getting you talking you're with brian kilmeade hey welcome back everybody let's take a look and see if there's more to know more to know sponsored by oxford gold group call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account 833-600-GOLD that's 833-600-GOLD Derek Carr rallied the Las Vegas Raiders, and they must have loved this at the network. Past Baltimore in a wild OT game. Let's listen to final pl- the final play. Going to throw. Drake picked up the pressure all alone is Zay Jones, and he will prance into the end zone for the touchdown and the victory in overtime for the Raiders, and this celebration is for real. Las Vegas has an NFL team. They finally have fans. Last year they had a stadium. Amazing. Uh, final score, 33-27. That's Carr. Lastly, Fox has acquired TMZ for an estimated $50 million. What do you think about this? Harvey Levin's got to be happy. 
I hope so, and hopefully we'll have him on the show more often to talk about all the gossip you love to talk about off the air. Right, I, I really <laughs> do. Uh, anything with Britney related. Uh, but I also would add, I would also like to add, too, that we're getting bigger and bigger. FBN, now there's a weather channel. Outkick. TMZ, Outkick. Yep. It's getting bigger and bigger. And more news. Cops is returning for new episodes on Fox Nation, uh, most recently on the Paramount Network. Uh, this show will go back into production and fall to produce uh, new episodes on international territories. That's going to be in September 13th. That's great. More law enforcement. It is, and it's, all, it's always a show that sucks you in. Right. It does suck you in, and it's pro-law enforcement. And remember, Live PD was once the number one show, and it was pulled because of the climate in the country. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.